we were having a conversation last week um, in the office, the church office, about uh, this first service and uh, trying to figure out why it's filling. Um, we're going to have to take a, some kind of a survey or something. But um, more of you are coming to this first service than used to. So I'm not certain what's, what's going on, but we're happy about it, thankful. Uh, what this means is that there are people in this room you don't know. Um, it means a few other things too, but as it relates to you, uh, maybe there's someone in here you could meet today that you haven't met before. Um, get to know them, at least share your names. Uh, anyways, it's good to have you all here. Thank you for coming. How many of you know who Will, William Tyndale is? All right, William Tyndale's a fairly important guy in church history. Uh, William Tyndale lived in the 16th century and he was executed for translating the Bible into English. Uh, God used William Tyndale to bless you and me. One of the main reasons that you and I are sitting here today with a copy of the Bible is because of William Tyndale. Uh, he went to great pains to translate the Bible into our language. Uh, his greatest desire was, of course, to see the Bible accessible to every Englishman, be able to read the Bible in his mother tongue instead of Greek or, uh, Greek or Hebrew or, or Latin. Of course, it was against the law for anyone to have a copy of the Bible in his day uh, without a license, and of course, those licenses were handed out by the church for the church alone. Uh, at the time, the church wanted to monopolize the Word of God and use it to control the masses, which they did effectively. And they rightly feared the losing of their power and control if the Bible were to be translated into the common language. Uh, William Tyndale, like Martin Luther before him, saw things differently than the church um, and believed that everyone needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the God becoming man and living a perfect life that's required by God and offering to credit that perfection to anyone who would believe in him. Tyndale thought that was an important message. Imagine that, that God actually forgives sins to anybody who would ask. And the church wanted to keep that secret. <laughs> Where had the church come? Unbelievable to think that that was actually the stated position of the church. The church couldn't permit the access to the most important information uh, to get into the hands of the people because they would lose control of the people and their money. So they outlawed the translating of it into English. Uh, if you want to keep people from understanding something, just make sure they don't hear it. And this is exactly what was the strategy of the church. But Tyndale broke the law, thankfully, and produced, uh, we think, in Wittenberg, not just a readable but excellent translation of the Bible into English. And... He had it smuggled back into England in bales of cotton. Originally, there was about 700 copies of his Bible printed on the printing press, which was relatively new in his day, and had them smuggled back into England. And, of course, this infuriated the church, and so they hunted him down, arrested him, and executed him for his crime in 1536 by strangulation. They were so upset with him, not only did they strangle him to death, they tied him to a stake after he was dead and burnt his body. <laughs> they were so upset with this guy. Um, I, was, I went to a shepherd's conference, uh, which is down in Los Angeles a few years back, and they had a copy of one of the original um, Tyndale Bibles printed, and I got to uh, get a picture with it. It was kind of a weird story, and I'll tell you because of its weirdness. It's in this uh, uh, air-conditioned room. They control the, app, the, the humidity in this room to preserve these old documents are in this room. And this copy of the Tyndale Bible was open to the book of Mark, and it was in, a, in this plexiglass box. I was in there with one other guy. We were sitting there looking at it. He takes this box off of the, and, and he holds this thing. And he says, get a picture with me. I, what are you doing? <laughs> and so, anyways, I got a picture without the plexiglass box and me and the Tyndale Bible. I'll show it to you if you're interested. But uh, 
Anyway, there you go. I could have been arrested. Who knows? Anyways, this translation uh, is a profound thing for us English speakers. And, it, and the translation of the King James Bible, by the way, leaned heavily upon Tyndale's translation. It was so excellent. So what is the, what is the word of God worth to you? We know it was worth Tyndale's life to him. We know that it's worth other, other people have died for this book as well. And we have got five copies, right? How many copies do you have at home? You might even have two with you now. I don't know. We got one in every single pew. Uh, we've got multiple copies at home. Of what value is the word of God, this, this printed book to you? What value is it to those who don't have a copy of it? And all they have is maybe a remnant of some verse or whatever they can pull out of their memory. Um, so asking the question, what is the word of God worth to you, may not be a realistic question to us here in America today. It may even be a misleading question or maybe your answers to that question might be the misleading thing. I think by the end of our time today, you'll, you'll know the question and the answer. I think most of us would say that we highly value the Word of God. Would you say that? If I were to take a poll, you'd probably raise your hand. Yeah, I value the Word of God. You would say that you try to obey it, that you trust it, that you revere it. Some would even say you treasure it. You ever thought of it like that, a treasure? One of my greatest desires and hopes, of course, as a pastor, uh, one of my prayers is that this would be true of our church, Sun Valley Church, um, and true of you personally. Today I pray that the Holy Spirit may open some eyes to the true value that you place on God's Word. How do you value God's Word? What is the value of it to you? In Psalm 119, verse 72, we have the opportunity to look intently into this issue. So if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to turn there with me. Psalm 119, verse 72. And we're going to look into the mirror of God's word here to examine our true affections for his word. So we're going to look into the word of God to see how much we truly value the word of God. Let me read the verse for you today, and then I'll unpack it for you. Verse 72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than, thou than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. How does it apply to us? Well, the first point is comparing treasures. Let's look, let's look at the comparison that the author does here between gold and silver and the word of God. Um, the author claims that he values God's word more than he does any amount of gold or silver, hence the, the term thousands or thousands of pieces. That's an impressive claim, isn't it? To say, I value the word of God more than anything the world has to offer. That's essentially what he's saying. Of course, we need to measure ourselves against these claims. Um, but... I want you to think about this claim thoroughly this morning with me in the hopes of considering the choices that we make daily that demonstrate what we value most in life. Okay? Let's look at the two items being compared, starting with the considerable less thing, that is gold and silver. We know that money, gold and silver, wealth and so forth, makes the world go round, right? We we really can't survive without it. That's not the argument of the, of the verse. Um, without money, without gold and silver, we would return to prehistoric times and trade pottery, corn, and sharp objects, I suppose. But then that would be our mammon, right? Um, so we need to understand something right up front that the author is not saying gold and silver, wealth, stocks and bonds and so forth is bad. He's not saying that at all. A lot of times you introduce this subject and people immediately think, okay, something, the church is again bashing wealth. That's not what's going on here. 
That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the author of this verse is saying. In fact, we could say that wealth is a good gift from God, right? It's something that the Bible says. I don't think I've ever met anybody who has no value for money at all. It's obvious that the author believes that gold and silver is of some value because he compares it to, to the scriptures. Even acknowledging the value of it, of it that is um, the scriptures, or the gold and silver rather, the psalmist is saying that he, if he were offered thousands of pieces of gold and silver, he would never trade it for the word of God. There isn't enough money on this planet, the author is saying, to get me to exchange that for the word of God. So this is the first point of comparison, money, gold and silver. The second half is, is God's word. Look, look at what this verse is saying about God's word. It's, it's amazing. Now, I, I want you to get into your own brain here a little bit with me. Try, try not to go on to autopilot like you might be accustomed to doing during my sermons. Um, try to get into your own brain here and think about this comparison. And, and not just with money, and I'll expose this in a little bit, but with anything else in your life that you value. So look at how this verse speaks of the word of God. First of all, he speaks of his own opinion. He says, he says to me, your word is more valuable. So the entire psalm here, Psalm 119, argues for the intrinsic value of God's word, right? So assuming that's the case, he is, he is now moving to his own opinion of that value. That's what's in view in this verse. It's better to me. And by saying this, uh, the author confirms that others may not esteem the word of God the way he does. To me, this word is more important, more valuable than any amount of money is what the author is saying. That's his opinion. And of course, we know that this, this uh, competes with what the world is selling us, what the world might say about the word of God. Our, our view in this church, at least our official view uh, in this church, uh, is in a significant minority view. You understand that? That even other churches don't agree with our view of scripture? Um, we have some pretty well-defined views of the Bible and what it is and the importance of it. And if you're interested in that, you can look in our doctrinal statements posted online. But it's a significant minority view, even in the church. So he, he speaks first and foremost about his opinion of the word of God here. Now look at the title. What is the title of the word of God here? You see it? The law of your mouth is the title that he gives to the word of God. The law of whose mouth? God's mouth is what he's talking about. Um, the word of God that we possess is no different than the audible words of God coming out of his mouth. This is a significant point. And I want you to follow me here. So, some have said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you were to hear God speak audibly... Pretend with me for a moment. If you heard God speak audibly, would it make more of an impact on you than if you were to pick up your Bible and read it? If so, you may want to consider what you think the Bible is. So if you went home this afternoon, you went to sleep on your couch, which you normally do on Sunday afternoon, and you had a vision, and God spoke to you, would it have more impact than what you're hearing right now? Well, listen to what Paul said to the Thessalonian church about this. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, that was when he, they heard it preached from the apostle Paul, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word from men, but as it, uh, what it really is, the word of 
God. This is crazy. Verse 72, friends, is saying that the written word of God that we possess is the word from his mouth. Verse 72 also forces us to consider the authority of the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God to those who hear it or read it. If the word of God is truly his word coming from his mouth, then isn't it true that it comes with inherent authority? It has to. Whatever the Bible addresses, whether it's finances, parenting, relationships, directions for churches, service, it is the final word on the matter, right? Why? Because it's God's word. This should affect how we parent our kids, how we spend our money, what we do in church, how much we attend church, how we spend our leisure, and our politics. Why? Because God's word deals with all those things. Gives us directions for each of those things. And so when we read the word of God and it addresses something specific, guess what? That's God speaking about that thing. And so you have a choice to make immediately. Am I going to do what that word says or am I going to do what my aunt says about it? Because my aunt read a blog and she said, this is how you're supposed to parent your children. Oh, well, that's good to know. You ought to post that on Facebook so everybody can know. Right? That's how we, do, that's how we operate. Unless you believe the Bible is God's word. <laughs> God's word says something specific about it. About all these things. As it relates to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, we know that God used ordinary men to be the scribes to record the words of God's mouth. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy, that is no scripture, was ever produced by the will of man. No one just sat down and said, hey, I think I'm going to write some, some Bible today. That's not how it worked. But how did it work? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what you possess in your hand wasn't invented by William Tyndale. It was translated by William Tyndale from those men who heard from God and wrote it down. So the Holy Spirit used men to write and then to preach and teach God's word to others. Friends, listen. This has impact for us in this room today and every Sunday, I hope. If I accurately interpret the words of Scripture and tell you what God intends by those words, those words that are coming out of my mouth are God's words for you. And I don't say that lightly. If I, if I deliver to you what God has delivered to us in this word... That is God's word for us. There should, they should be received no differently than if God were speaking audibly to you. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, what about the conflicting interpretation by trusted expositors? You got this expositor saying this and this expositor saying that, and they both say they've got God's intent for the passage. That's a good question, isn't it? What do you do with those conflicting things? Well, um, that's very challenging. But listen, 99% of all matters of practical Christian living are not a matter of difficult interpretation. 99% of what the Bible says about how you ought to live your Christian life is not difficult to interpret. And there is no conflict in interpretation. Where we find conflict in interpretation is in the finer details of doctrine. Right? Like whether or not the Bible actually says to baptize babies. That's up for conversation. But you know what? That's not a matter of practical Christian living. It's a matter of doctrine. When the Bible says this is how many times, this, or this is how you ought to relate to one another in the church on a loving basis of love, there's no two respected theologians that disagree with that. 
There are no two respected theologians that disagree about how you ought to give or how you ought to parent. These are all things that are agreed upon, 99% of them. So if you want to worry about the 1%, I, I suppose you could. I, in fact, I don't even know what it is. What is the one? Maybe it's 100%. I don't know. When it comes to practical Christian living, there is not disagreement between theologians or expositors. There's this very important issue of this being the word of God for Christian living. It is no surprise, friends, that, that riches and wealth attract the world. Um, that makes total sense. There's nothing more valuable to them, right? But Psalm 19.10 says this, more to be desired are they than gold. That is what? The word of God, what we just heard read. More to be desired are they, that is the word of God, than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Better than the most, the best wealth and the best food. But the world remains attracted to what the world can produce. But the true child of God is affected by something much greater, right? I like to look a little more closely at the comparison of verse 72 by looking at the difference between the nature, usefulness, and longevity of these two things, the Word of God and wealth. All right, let's look at them. So if you want an argument uh, that the author is making here, you want to get to the bottom of it. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's look at these three areas, see if it holds water. The nature, usefulness, and longevity of both of these things. First, the nature. In Luke 16, Jesus compares wealth um, versus true riches. He says this, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? So we have worldly wealth and godly wealth. And Jesus says those are two different things. He thought that being rich towards God was true riches. This is true wealth. To know God, to value God, to value his word. This is what Jesus said about the rich man in Luke, 20, Luke 12, 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So worldly treasure versus rich toward God. Worldly wealth, godly wealth. There's a difference between the nature of these things too, these two things. Now, is it safe to say that the more you have of something truly valuable, the richer you are? Is that safe to say? The more you have of something truly valuable, the richer you are? I think so. In Papua New Guinea, for example, the natives count wealth based on how many pigs live under their house. So if you got eight pigs, you're more wealthy than the guy who got six pigs. Children, if they got a nice new shiny toy, they're better off than the kid who doesn't have the nice new shiny toy. Adults in this country think if you got more homes and cars, you're better off than the guy who doesn't, right? Well, the true child of God counts himself rich when God is his portion. Look at verse 57 of Psalm 119. You are my portion. The one who is truly wealthy in God's eyes, in Scripture's eyes, in the authors of Scripture's eyes, are those who possess God, possess his word. When they possess the one who has given them spiritual life, when they possess the spirit of God who sanctifies and guides and comforts, when they possess the son of God who is savior and friend, then you are truly wealthy in the real world. It is in the word where we discover pardon for sin and the unsearchable riches of grace in Christ and eternal life with him. Interestingly, I think if you were to present these two things to dying man, the choice would be obvious. 
right? Is not the source of our knowledge of God and our relationship with him directly from his word? So how valuable is the word of God to you? Let me give you a couple proofs for this argument that's being made here in verse 72. That is the the proof of the superiority of of God's word over riches. The first is this, physical wealth cannot purchase the things the word of God offers. Physical wealth cannot purchase the thing the word of God offers. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter 1.19, knowing that you were ransomed. How many of you value being ransomed? None of you? That's a surprise, one of you, good. Listen to this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, how are you ransomed? This, Peter says, not with, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. That's not how you were ransomed. You remember the rest of the verse? But with the blood of Christ, something supremely valuable. Acts 20, or Acts 8, 20, rather. This guy wanted to buy the Spirit of God. Remember him in, in chapter 8? Because he wanted to perform tricks like the apostles did. And so he offered Peter and John money. So give me this power and I'll give you some money. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. No deal, Peter says. You see, godliness can provide an abundance of wealth, but wealth cannot provide an abundance of godliness. Interestingly, a lack of worldly wealth actually helps to increase our experience of grace and deepening our relationship with God. It's the lack of what the world says is valuable that actually produces godliness. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus asks, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What would you pay? Second proof of the superiority of the word of God over wealth, physical wealth that is, is having the word of God and the God of the word, having the word of God and the God of the word, allows us to value things in this life that money doesn't create. Sickness, for example, the true believer may consider to be better than health. That's odd. You would choose sickness over health? Poverty over wealth? Lack better than abundance? What's wrong with you people? How is this possible? Paul speaks of this a little bit in 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, that's a little key clause, then I am content with weakness. Because of Christ, I'm content with weakness instead of strength. Insults, I'm content with insults. Hardships, persecutions, calamities, why? For when I'm weak, I'm strong. You see, having the word of God Having the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God, upends everything. You remember the book of James, don't you? Look what he wrote in chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's talking about the poor guy in the congregation. Let him boast about his exaltation. Well, that's all backwards, James. He says this in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers... Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? It is upside down. That's what knowing God and the God of the Bible here, the word of God and the the God of the word does to those who embrace these things. So that's the first thing I want you to think about in terms of comparison. Secondly is the usefulness, the nature Now the usefulness. The usefulness of gold and silver is well established, right? We all know what it can do. 
can be used for good, for evil, but let's consider the usefulness of the Word of God to see if money matches that. First of all, the Word God produces a divine nature in us. 1 Peter 1.23, James 1.18 say directly that God's Word itself brings about salvation, which is why that you present the Word of God in your testimony. When you're talking to your neighbor about church and Christ, you give them the Word of God. You don't tell them how much you've enjoyed this, that's not, I mean, you don't, I'm not saying you shouldn't say that in your testimony. I'm saying your testimony can't be absent of the Word of God because the power is in the Word. The Word of God is what transforms the heart, not our testimonies. Okay? So the Word of God produces the divine nature in us, 1 Peter 1.23, James 1.18. Say that God itself, the Word of God itself brings about salvation. In John 17, 17, Jesus said that the Word of God produces holiness in us. Does money do that? Uh, 2 Peter 1, 14 actually says that the Word of God creates God's nature within us. The Word of God somehow takes a, a dirty, rotten sinner like you and me and creates a divine nature within us. The Word of God does that. That's fairly useful. How about this? The Word of God directs and protects us. Even in this psalm, Psalm 119, 105. The Word of God is what to my feet? A lamp to my feet. So it directs us, protects us in Psalm, 130, psalm 119, verse 133. Well, you may argue that physical wealth also can protect me. I can hire a guard. I can put up a big fence. And how has that worked out for people who've done that? Sometimes that doesn't work all that well. God's word promises to protect us um, from, from everything, from anything that might be ultimately hurt, uh, harmful. It protects our minds from darkness, our souls from damnation. It guides our steps and keeps us out of trouble, both physical and spiritual. You know, most missionaries don't go to hostile regions with an entourage carrying rifles. You know why that is, right? You know why missionaries don't carry submachine guns? Is their protection doesn't come from armor, from weaponry. It comes from God. Do you know that <clears throat> the five missionaries that died in Ecuador in 1956... Um, one of them was Nate Saint, the pilot, those, those fellows. Nate Saint actually had a, a gun with him, and he had it in his hand when all five of them were killed. <laughs> Why not use it? Your life's on the line, man. Don't be stupid. Well, who was protecting him? Was it the gun? No. Listen, friends, the, the Word of God produces divine nature, it directs and protects, it strengthens us in difficulty. Can wealth comfort a grieving parent or a grieving spouse? Listen to one who can. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Psalm 119, 50, this is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. The usefulness of scripture versus that of wealth, who wins that one? How about the longevity? Obviously, I'm putting this list together so <clears throat> the atheist would have a different list um, that we would, I think, see through. Hopefully, we would see through. So we're looking at comparing the nature, usefulness, and longevity of the Word of God versus wealth. Um, now, let's look at this, that longevity here. What do we use physical wealth for? 
good things, right? Paying our bills, buying food, helping our kids, you know, having cover. Um, It's to sustain our lives while we live. Isn't that the most important part of that sentence? (laughs) We use wealth to sustain our lives while we live. For the moment we die, of what good is our wealth? If you've been nice, it might be good for your children. But to you, it's of no value. See, we heard, read this morning from Psalm 19, verse 7, that the word of God revives the soul. What does that mean? It means it saves the soul, it converts the soul. The soul is that part of us that lives on after death. So earthly wealth is of no value after the last time you close your eyes, but the use of God's word continues past death and into eternity. You see, death itself is one of the greatest supports or arguments of the value of the word of God over riches. Someone wants to debate this with you, just say this one word, death. See what happens. Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 is clarifying. You remember that story, right? We had a rich man who had servants and all this food and unbelievable surroundings. Well, at his gate lied a sick man who was dying and miserable but believed. Along comes death to both of these guys, and lo and behold, what happens? All things changed for both of them, right? Seems the word of God had an enduring value to the poor man. Job 27, verse 8, For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life, then what? We've all heard story after story of rich people in anguish at death or at the moment of death because their wealth is no value or comfort to them. Can you honestly say what this psalmist has written? To me, the word of your mouth is more valuable than any amount of riches. Can you say that? You still might be there saying, yeah, of course, I can say that. I say that. I'll say that now. Ask me. I'll say it. Well, let's look at the next point, treasuring God. How do you know if you really treasure God? What was the first point? Let's go back there for a second. Comparing treasures between God and his word and what the world offers. Now let's look at treasuring God. How How do we do this? Friends, it's it's easy to say that you'd never exchange God's word for material gain, but I want you to think a little more with me on this, just for a second. Indulge me. We had a family that used to attend Sun Valley Church that needed to have us fill out a Christian school form that confirmed their regular attendance. Um, Since they were not consistent here in their attendance, we filled out the form that reflected that truth. And within a very short time, I received a phone call from the dad um, asking why I said they were inconsistent in their Sunday morning attendance. He told me that they were in church every Sunday they could be, as long as it didn't interfere with their kids' sports, their family trips, and their needed time to relax. They were always here. That was his response. We are so committed to this church. We're here whenever we can be unless it interrupts something we want to do was his answer. Which frankly blew my mind. I don't know how many of you are in that frame of mind but that is not a demonstration of commitment. In case you're wondering what my opinion is. The question is, what do you exchange the word of God for? What are you willingly going to give up the word of God for? 
and still be okay with it and still claim that you value God's word. This question isn't about whether or not you think the word of God is important, true, or good. This question is not whether you would take an offer of some large sum of money to get rid of every copy of the Bible that you own and never look at one again. That's not the question. The question is what you daily exchange the word of God for. Do you exchange it for work, for free time, for your kids, for your leisure? That's the question in front of us, not some obscure question about a philosophical point. It's what are you doing daily with the Word of God? If it is so important to you, as you claim in your head that it might have been as just as important as it was to Tyndale here about a half an hour ago, if it is that important to you, is there anything getting in the way of it? Now? Currently? This week? Well, how, how do we get to the place where we actually treasure the Word of God? That God's Word is my treasure. Well, let's spend just a few minutes here, and then we'll be done. What causes us to understand the value of God's Word is first and foremost a regenerated heart. You understand that? You will never treasure God's word as it's intended by God to be treasured if you do not have a regenerated heart. The world will always win that competition. To those who don't know God, his word is of little value. It reads like historical fiction at best. The heart renewed by grace embraces the value of the word of God because it embraces God's son, Jesus Christ, who is the point of the word. There is nothing of greater value to the authentic believer than God and his word. Not even family. You see, we value God's word more than gold and silver because the Holy Spirit indwells us and enlightens our mind, helps us understand what is truly valuable. The discernment of what is most valuable is given in the word of God through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, I read at least a couple times last week. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That natural person is a person who does not have a regenerated heart. They don't know Jesus. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because those things are folly. They're foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They make no sense. This is historical fiction. Who cares? When's the game start? You see, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in those he converts and begins the transformation of the affections. You begin to love Christ Love his word. It begins to dwell in you richly, as we were confessing this morning. It becomes all important to you. This is what the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you understand that you may know what is the hope that, to which he has called you, that are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Oh, friends, may that prayer be directed towards me and you. You see, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of authentic believers gives insight and wisdom into the value of things, mostly valuing God and his word. The presence of the Holy Spirit gives you the wisdom to prioritize Good, better, and best. How does it grow? How does it begin? The Holy Spirit's presence. How does it grow? Again, the presence of the Holy Spirit does his work. He begins something. He who began a good work does what? We'll complete it. He begins a work in conversion in that regenerating of the heart and begins a process of cleaning up shop changing the affections, solidifying what's important. 
And so now today, if you're a believer, you value things differently than what you did a year ago or two years or ten years ago. Have you noticed that, Christian friend? The presence of the Holy Spirit causes clear thinking. Clear thinking on which is more valuable in the world, the present world or the world to come. It's really hard without the Spirit of God to make that distinction right. You know, what's more valuable, what you can feel, taste, and touch, or that sweet by and by that is in a song someplace? Unless you have the Spirit of God, friends, that second world does not exist. Listen to what Paul said about this in 2 Corinthians 4.18. Talking as Christians, as we look not to the things that are seen, that's this world, but to the things that are unseen, that's the next world. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing, temporary, longevity, short. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The Holy Spirit of God does that. Presence of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit and a regenerated heart, we'd be fools not to pursue the world and its offerings. The pursuit of money makes complete sense if you don't believe in the world to come. But here's a bulletin, news bulletin. There is a world to come. True believers see that world with eyes of faith. So how does it grow? The presence of the Holy Spirit is a necessary element. Secondly, living life as a Christian helps it grow. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up into salvation. Okay? Growing up into Christ, knowing the difference between what's important and what's not. Now look at the end of the verse. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How do you go about tasting to see whether or not the Lord is good? I'll give you two words. Live life. You live a little life and you learn these things, don't you? If you've ever faced a crisis of some kind, you learn this. You ever faced a personal need? You learn this, don't you? Really quickly. For believers, the longer we live, the more we prove the value of God and His Word. How do we get this to grow? By the Holy Spirit, by living life, and then thirdly, by being intentional. And this is where I become a broken record. Play this same song again. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Be in church, Sunday school, small groups, online sermons, reading, etc., 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 etc. Saturate your brain with the Word of God. Instead of listening to your regular radio show, whatever you do on the way to work, why not listen to the Word of God? Try it for a month, see what happens. All these things we've talked about ad infinitum, right? I mean, continually. On and on and on. Here are my closing thoughts. Friends, if there's anything that tempts you to ignore God's Word, what are you supposed to do with that thing? What if there's something actually in competition with your heart that's been regenerated? What's that, that thing, whatever it is, in competition with the value of the Word of God and the value of God Himself, and yet you are saved? What do you do about that? One of the greatest minds that's ever lived, a guy named John Owen, said this, kill it, dead. So whatever it is that's causing you to you know, struggle with the value of the Word of God, kill it dead. You say, well, look, that's my kids you're talking about. Well, um, <laughs> I would recommend that you don't do that physically, but um, spiritually, there can be no competition with God and His Word. The Holy Spirit gives you the wisdom to prioritize what your children need, friends, most is godly parents. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we cannot exchange the word of God for anything. Listen to Hebrews 11.26. Speaking of Moses, 
who was born into royalty, who's actually he was born into poverty, but he was adopted by royalty. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he had all, everything. He had everything he wanted, anything he wanted. Choosing rather, the author of Hebrews says, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. He had a godly perspective. He knew what was important because of the Spirit of God. He understood what was more valuable. Friends, my prayer as I was preparing this week is that your hearts would be challenged not by the philosophical question on whether or not you value the Word of God, but on the daily practical question on whether or not you value the Word of God. Let's pray. God, we can never get enough of your word, and so in that regard, we do not value it as we should. But I pray for th these in this room who have a daily struggle with the basics on whether to get up 10 minutes early or not, whether to open their Bible or open the newspaper, whether to listen to the radio or listen to your word, those are for whom I'm praying at this point. God, if they are regenerated, I pray that your spirit would actively pinpoint this issue in their soul, that they wouldn't be able from this day forward to prioritize worldly things over you and your word. God, grant this blessing, this favor to each of us that we might embrace you above all things worldly, that the word of your mouth would be of more value than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Oh, Lord, have this mercy on us. Don't allow us to continue down the worldly path of being fooled into thinking that it is offering us something of more value than God and his word. Oh God, Spirit of God, Jesus our Savior, please be merciful to us sinners who get distracted so easily. Spirit, please do your work in us for the glory of Christ and for our eternal joy. Amen.